Insights for Building Your Patient's Medical Home. I'm Lori. And I'm Michelle, and we're with the Alberta Medical Association. Today we're bringing you an important topic. We're going to be talking about the Opioid Response Initiative in Alberta and the role that primary care is playing in that response. Yeah, and we're lucky to have Dr. Christine Lilo with us. Um, she is a family doctor with a, a passion for this work, and um, and I, I think it was a really interesting interview. But before we get to that, Lori, I just want to talk a little bit about Patients Medical Home and, and all of our podcasts relate to the implementation elements for becoming a patient's medical home. And last time I checked, I didn't see opioids as one of those elements. So how does this fit? Sure. Thanks, Michelle. So no, you're right. The opioid response is not an implementation element of itself. But why this is such an important topic and relevant to this podcast, because what's being asked of primary care in the opioid response actually hits all of the implementation elements. Hmm. So if we think about those foundational pieces around having an engaged leader and building capacity for improvement, so being able to have the methods to make changes, um, panel and continuity, knowing who your patients are, uh, using your team, uh, to care for these patients, organize evidence-based care, really using your EMR and using a population health approach, patient-centered interactions. Uh, of course, we need good access to take care of this patient population, to take care of all of our pa- patient populations, and uh, coordinating care across the system uh, because this isn't something that can be taken care of in primary care alone. I get it. I get it. And I I think we're going to hear Dr. Lilo speak specifically around things like some practical tips for primary care clinics to do this work and really use the team that they've got, um, not just the doctor. Yep. Um, And then also things like how to use some non-judgmental language Mm -hmm. um, in being really patient-centered in this work. Great. Should we take a listen? Yes, let's go. have Dr. Christine Lilo with us today talking about the opioid opioid crisis response initiative uh, that we have here in Alberta. Great and we're so happy to have you in the studio with us today Dr. Lilo Um, and we thought maybe we'd um, ask you to tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves and the work that you do as a family physician. Sure and and thanks a lot for inviting me today. I'm I'm pretty passionate about um, responding to this crisis so Uh, I am actually a community family practitioner. I work three days a week in uh, South Calgary, having graduated from the University of Alberta, and I did my residency there based at the Royal Alex. I've not got any kind of specialty training in opioids or uh, opioid deprescribing. I'm just your regular family doc in the community who happens to have a bit of a passion around um, medical home and quality improvement and uh, working in the PCN structure since its beginning 13 plus years ago. So um, I've been fortunate to be the lead physician for the primary health care grant here in the Calgary Zone. So uh, thanks for inviting me to talk a bit about it. Well, thanks, Christine. Uh, So we'll just dive right in. I think most people are aware that we're in the midst of an opioid crisis in in Canada and we've got all levels of government uh, trying to take action to work on the crisis. Uh, Can you provide a little bit of background on the Alberta response to the opioid crisis? 
Absolutely. You're right. You can't uh, turn on the radio or the news these days without seeing something about deaths from uh, opioids in Canada. And uh, here in Alberta, the Minister's Opioid Emergency Response Commission underwent uh, some exploration around this and decided uh, on a number of different recommendations and $30 million was allocated to respond. Of that, just under $10 million is going to be part of the primary health care response and that's being led by the Alberta College of Family Physicians in partnership with the AMA, Alberta Health Services and uh, the PCN Zonal Committee. So that's, that's where I get involved. We are looking at how primary care can respond to this crisis. And in my mind, we're actually perfectly suited for this. We have the opportunity to connect with patients uh, on a regular basis for lots of other health needs. And those are all opportunities to find out if someone is uh, in in a trouble, you know, with opioid use disorder, maybe on the verge of uh, becoming a so-called addict. And um, we also have the ability to respond in a way that becomes a really long-term, sustainable upstream approach to this crisis. It's one thing to help people who are already in crisis, quite another to actually bend the curve so that people don't end up in crisis in the first place. And that's really what proactive family practice care is all about. Right. So it sounds like um, there there is a distinct niche for primary care in, in contributing to managing the opioid crisis. Um, and you mentioned that um, that family physicians are, are uniquely um, positioned. And do you think that all family physicians, no one believed that? Or, or what's the prevailing belief out there? That's a really good point. And I think that's really been the beginning stages of the work we've been doing with the grant, especially here in the Calgary zone, um, which is really helping physicians to understand where they have strongly held beliefs and um, have kind of propagated the myths around uh, the deaths from opioids. We've got this picture of a homeless person living on the streets, um, addicted to any number of different drugs, who is overdosing, you know, by accident, maybe on purpose. And really, I think society in a lot of ways has written those folks off. And what I try to tell my colleagues is that those Albertans didn't start there. They they probably were highly functioning at one point. Um, they made some choices. Um, perhaps they were prescribed opioids for good reason. And, um, you know, one choice after another ended them up in a place where, you know, we've, as a society, been able to say that's not our problem anymore. So I'd argue that we need to start shifting our thoughts, again, especially in primary care, to thinking about those patients who are in the early stages of that slide and how can we use this money that's been allocated through primary care to shift the conversation to earlier on in these patients' journeys to a place where maybe we don't even prescribe the opioids in the first place or when we do, we have a very clear plan about that. And um, the first part is really understanding that we have these um, firmly held beliefs that are, that are not actually true. 
Right. And it, it makes me think of, um, I actually have a person in my life who, um, who had an injury as a young person, an ankle uh, bone that was reset improperly and has been dealing with neurological pain for many, many years. And, um, you know, I don't think anyone would guess that she's on really high doses of opioids, strong opioids, um, but very um, high functioning uh, community member. And I actually was very happy to hear that her family physician has taken the initiative and is working with her on uh, getting on OATs um, and and tapering off of those those really strong opiates that she's been on. So, um, yeah, so it is the person that maybe you wouldn't expect who actually needs some help. Absolutely. And, and when you look at the data surrounding um, the opioid deaths, there there is actually a larger proportion of those deaths happening outside of the core of the big cities. Um, the the homeless person on the street being responded to by the paramedics is the piece that makes the news. Mm-hmm. It isn't the, you know, 40-something um, stay-at-home mom, soccer mom, who's quietly using Percocet to cope with her life after being prescribed for something else. Mm-hmm. And the challenge with regards to these drugs is that when you try to stop them on your own because you think, I don't want to do this anymore, you feel really crummy, mm-hmm. right? There needs to be there needs to be a really well-managed plan there. So um, that's where I think family practice can start to do a better job um, and and do smart care for these patients uh, with these patients and um, a big part of that is thinking outside of the I've got pain I need a pain med mentality right so thinking about all the other things that we can uh, offer to patients meditation uh, relaxation techniques pacing activities because Patients who have chronic pain and use medications long term still have pain, right? right? Like we, they still have pain. So maybe we could look for a future for them where, yes, they still have pain, but they're also not on narcotics and they're safer as yeah. a result of that. So we really need to fundamentally shift the conversation both within our culture with patients with Albertans as well as within the care providers. We all need to kind of bring our thinking around to what's more evidence-based and um, much more, you know, 2018. <laughs> I, I love all of those options and I really like your emphasis on the primary care work being the upstream work and really being able to focus on prevention. But really, this is more this is more work um, coming at primary care. Family docs, primary care teams, they're really, really busy. How can primary care address the opioid crisis efficiently? That's probably one of the biggest hurdles we face with a lot of family physicians. Um, you know, if you add up all of the different things that a family doc is supposed to do as part of the care of their patient, as is requested by each of the different organ specialties, as we call them, um, you know, you're looking at four hours for a visit with your patient, and, and that's obviously not uh, not appropriate. So really, the way to, I think, do this work well moving forward 
is to make sure that we're using all of our team members. So that could be our medical office assistant who books an appointment with a patient already on opioids and understanding we need to book more time for that appointment. That could be your um, panel manager flagging charts for patients who have other addictive personality uh, types, you know, smokers, patients who drink more than five alcoholic beverages a week, uh, patients who've previously had more than one opioid prescription. So flagging those patients. So if you're in a visit and you're contemplating pain management, right away you've got that um, visual context in their chart that says, hey, maybe take pause here and, and, and don't rush into something that's going to end up with this patient in trouble. So that's where you can use your team members to kind of get the right patient in the right conversation but we also talk, you know, sometimes we forget to talk about our most expensive employee, which is our electronic medical record. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think if you talk to most physicians, they have that love-hate relationship with their EMR. We are at a stage, I think, in, in Alberta where we've been doing this for long enough. We need to be using our EMRs uh, as they were designed rather than as electronic paper charts. And that's where I think AMA for sure, you know, has lots of good tools in place and, you know, mentorship, etc. that have happened over the years. So I think we can, you know, leverage those tools that the AMA has brought forward through improvement facilitators and, and the change management portion of this grant to use those EMRs to help us get the right information in front of us, even if it's like the right handout for this patient. You know, there's all sorts of ways to use your EMR that you may not have thought of. So um, yes, it's a little bit of extra work. It isn't nearly as much as you might think of as long as you think of spreading the work around to your team members. So we heard about your EMR team member. Are there any other skills that the physician and team members might need to consider? I think it's important um, that we learn a new non-judgmental language when we're talking to patients about opioid use disorder. I think it's important um, that we know who our patients are. We should all, everyone in the system should be having conversations with patients that are on opioids or who are at risk about maybe changing that. But I think the system needs to be really clear who the most responsible physician is because that's probably the person who needs to most engage with that patient. Mm-hmm. Um, and so whether that's you know someone being seen and identified in emergency and then transferred care back to their family doc. And for sure, CPAR coming online in 2019 is going to be a key technical enabler for that because right now we really don't have great clarity on who everyone belongs with and to. Mm-hmm. And um, so that often leads to duplication of efforts or even worse, um, no effort whatsoever because we're not clear who who owns that person's care aside from the patient themselves. Great. And um, you mentioned CPAR. For those who maybe haven't heard about that, it's the Central Patient Attachment Registry. Um, and uh, it's going to change a lot of a lot of things make a lot of things easier along those lines for sure and we will definitely have a podcast um, to give people a little bit more information about that so look for that in the in the list of available podcasts Um, you mentioned also using non-judgmental language and I'm wondering can you give an example of what that might sound like so often we talk about someone who's in trouble with opioids and we say you're addicted 
you're addicted to opioids. Mm. You are an addict. Um, and as if this is somehow a choice that someone has made um, versus it seems like we're in a situation here where the opioids have had an effect on you that's made you use them or uh, allowed you to use them in a way that's now become harmful to you. Mm. So it's a subtlety mm -hmm. um, where we take the blame off of the patient and we talk about here's the situation that you're in and mm -hmm. here's the way that we get you out of that. Um, and we've... I think always struggled a little bit, that whether it's, you know, weight or smoking or even picky eaters for little kids, right? You are a picky eater yeah. instead of this is yeah. a picky eater situation that we <laughs> somehow can fix. So I think it can be, especially when you're rushed, it can be difficult to not fall back on those kind of old terms and that old language. So a big part of what this grant is designed to do is is uh, educate team members and physicians. And uh, a, a large portion of that will be around understanding um, what opioid use disorder is versus addiction, where it, where it falls on that gray scale from, I don't use any opioids, I've never had a problem, all the way up to, I'm homeless and in really big trouble. Yeah. I noticed that um, the CPSA website has, of course, lots of information on, on opioids. And in particular, when they were talking about training for Suboxone prescribing, it actually recommended that not only family physicians take the training, but also um, that multidisciplinary team members, it might be appropriate for them to take as well. So, um, you know, some, some have access to pharmacists or RNs or, so it might be kind of a, you can expand that team approach even further and then um, I also noticed that the ACFP the Alberta College of Family Physicians has their mentor mentee program where um, if you're a physician um, who maybe has done some prescribing of suboxone and has been doing work in this area you can work with with other peers who maybe would like to learn more and have some support around that. So there's lots of, um, lots of resources and that's, I mean, that's only two out of many. So we'll try to put again, some links in the show notes to, to resources that might be available to help people who are interested in learning more. So Christine, what is next for family physicians? What, what action could your peers take uh, today and in the coming weeks and months? What I'm inspiring uh, or hopefully inspiring my colleagues to think about is what are my deeply held beliefs and thoughts around who are the people that this is affecting and leave room for the fact that it isn't just this group that we tend to see on the news um, and that even though you may not have a big handful of opioid deaths in your practice, you probably have a big handful of people who are at risk or already starting to be in trouble. So I think just opening up your mind and your heart to the idea that these people are in your practice and that you have uh, not just a duty of care, but a duty to care and to do the best that you can for these folks. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, no shortage of resources out there. So our job as um, people leading these grants in the different zones is to help connect family docs and their teams to these resources. And uh, I, I often say that on April 1st, 2020, which is when this grant ends, 
my perfect state would be that Albertans are well informed of the risks. They feel comfortable approaching their family doctor if they feel like they or their family members or their friends are in trouble, and that the family doc or, or and or someone from their team is well educated to be able to receive that ask without you know a big startled look on their face and um, that we will be able to react to that the same way we can to a diabetes diagnosis mm. it'll be it'll be that easy for us <laughs> yeah. quote unquote easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I love the ease but I also think this is one population it's a right it's a population who is who is at risk and there's many at risk um, populations that we can be looking at in primary care. So this work is going to set us up uh, to be taking care of a lot of other patient populations as well. Yeah, I agree. And I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg there using our panel processes within medical homes to start identifying those uh, panels. And, and that really allows us to spend our time and our energy where it's most needed um, and you know, stop doing some of the busy work that we sometimes end up doing in family practice, which is still work that needs to be done and it's important in and of itself, but I, I think we need to um, be a bit wider focus than that. Wow, this has been this has been awesome. Thank you so much. I, I think that um, I think you're going to inspire quite a few of your peers and I know I'm feeling inspired how about you absolutely (laughs) so thank you so much Christine for joining us well thanks for inviting me and and I I look forward to hearing more about CPAR in your other podcast and um, seeing how we all do in primary care in, in in our little part of fixing what's wrong with opioids fantastic well thank you again and until next time Thanks so much for tuning in. Check out the show notes for links to the tools, resources, and websites that were referenced in this podcast. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Leave us a comment, tell us what you thought, and what you'd like to hear more about. And until next time, grab your hammer and keep building one nail at a time.